If you want to learn how to gain insights you can act on and solve business problems with data, all while building a data-driven culture at your organization, sign up for Pragmatic Institute's new course, Data Science for Business Leaders. Find out more at pragmaticinstitute.com data. Welcome to Data Chats. I'm your host, Chris Richardson, and I'm thrilled today to be speaking with Ben Jones. He is the co-founder and CEO of Data Literacy, and I found him by reading as much as I could about data and stumbling upon his book, Avoiding Data Pitfalls, How to Steer Clear of Common Blunders When Working with Data and Presenting Analysis and Visualizations, which I just found so helpful. I sent him a message and he has graciously agreed to speak with me today. So first off, Ben, thank you very much. Oh, thanks for having me, Chris. Yeah, it's nice that you found that book and really was uh, cool to hear from you and I'm excited to be on the show here. Yeah, and maybe you can tell the audience a little bit about your background and what it is that you do. Sure, yeah, so I work right now at data literacy, dataliteracy.com is our website. And um, I've been doing more of that writing and course creating and teaching that kind of got me into this position where I am today. I spent many years at Tableau running the Tableau public product marketing team. But at the same time, I started teaching at the University of Washington. I started writing and I wrote my first book. And I realized I really like to be a part of people's light bulb moments. So that's what led me uh, about three years ago to leave that company. Perfectly good job. <laughs> and step out on my own starting this business. And then uh, my wife left Amazon a year later and now runs sales and business development. And uh, we are, you know, a mom and pop shop. We've got a, another employee now that we brought on board in October and uh, we're growing and having fun and, and really learning how to reach audiences and help them get excited about data and really to get confident that they have what it takes. So that's what I'm up to these days. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's a perfect uh, segue into some of the things I want to ask you about, because let's say uh, for people in the business world and diverse organizations who know that data is where it's at, we need to be data driven. What do those people who are familiar enough, but not necessarily super data savvy, what do they need to know to get started? What is it that you often begin with? Yeah, so we start off in our first course and our first lesson with the idea of the one overall goal of data, you know, which is to develop wisdom, to apply it, to make better decisions. And so we use a really uh, popular model there called the DIKW pyramid, which stands for data, information, knowledge, and wisdom. And it's a way you can step up and leverage raw data in its you know form that you originally find it it might not be very usable you might not even know what it is or what it means and so how do you convert it how do you process it to get to a place where you have that aha moment and you say well we're going to do something a little differently now than we've been doing before thanks to what we learned from this data and so just to kind of get them comfortable with the, the fact that that is the chief value you know that data right now is bringing to all kinds of organizations nonprofits for profits government agencies, you name it. And so once they really get comfortable with that, they can get excited about that. And they can realize that, you know, there's a reason to dive in and go further than maybe they've gone before. So that's where we start, you know, from there, actually, the, the second lesson, I won't go through all of them. But the second lesson is a little bit of a myth buster, because we tell them that, 
you know, their intuition still matters. And so there's this common misconception out there that, you know, data kind of replaces our gut feel or, and we don't believe that at all. You know, we, we like to teach the system one, system two thinking, this dual process theory that's come out right now. And you can read all about it in Danny Kahneman's book, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, if you're interested in it. But, you know, there's a good reason for us to figure out how to combine analytical approaches and intuitive approaches. And so we help them kind of, maybe that's a relief to them to hear that all my experience and the things that I feel are true are part of the conversation as well and can actually be very helpful because while they're not perfect and they're very flawed as well, they can also point to and help us uncover maybe issues with the data uh, because it's not perfect either. So it's a, a matter of bringing both of those sides of ourselves to the equation, to the table, you know, so to speak. So that's where we start, you know, and I think that those are important lessons for people to get through as they seek to, you know, start step forward and build a, a good foundation for themselves. Yeah. And uh, I mean, that makes me think a lot of the people I've been talking to as I'm helping at Pragmatic create some courses, particularly designed around data and, and using it to its full potential. I think a lot of people in the product space, they have a deep knowledge of the market that they're in. I mean, that's what they do. Product managers in particular, product marketers, they know their markets, um, but they don't necessarily know the intricacies of the data world. And so I think it, it does come probably as a relief that that market knowledge is, is not to be overtaken now by data. How do you start to integrate those? Is there a, is there a way of thinking about it? I mean, I would imagine it, it's specific to different situations, but knowing a lot about your market and then knowing that you want to use data to help you make decisions, how do you start to think about mixing those two elements? Yeah, so you know, it's, it's sort of like the idea of combining both halves of our brain, left brain, right brain, although I don't think it's necessarily so spatially organized like that. The brain is a little bit more messy in the sense that a lot of these different structures are our brain are involved with all these different types of thinking. So, I mean, but in a practical way, you know, it's about the questions we ask. It's about what we notice and how we go about processing both our own insights, as well as those we're gleaning from data and really being open to being wrong, being open to also the fact that your data might be as perfect as you may have assumed it might be up front. So it's the mindset, I think, is a starting point. But it's more than that, because then we have to actually put in place a process. And that's actually the book I'm working on right now is a, a tool agnostic framework to kind of go through all the steps. You know, what are the ways in which we come up with observations and questions? And from there, how do we maybe develop even a simple guess or even maybe a more sophisticated hypothesis we have to gather data next, find out if it's relevant, maybe even profile it or explore its contours to see, you know, what sort of data we're working with. And then, you know, step through the process of preparing it for analysis, a lot of technical work there, pivoting joins and unions and actually rolling up our sleeves now and working with these tables, right? And mm -hmm. getting them into shape and doing the analysis itself. I'm a big believer in visualization as a key part of this process it really brings it to life. You know, uh, we really see the data come to life in our, in front of our eyes uh, when we put it into uh, charts and graphs and even dashboards. And that can really uh, be a shortcut to us, to, for us to uh, finding out what, what is in there and, uh, you know, having conversations with others as well as we 
uh, pivot from learning something from a chart to then maybe communicating it to someone else and trying to actually ask ourselves, well, what is the way to make this come to life for them? And so this is where I think a lot of the industry knowledge and the experience comes in because you know why it matters. You understand the context. You're able to combine that with anecdotes and statistics and bringing those two together. Uh, because at the end of the day, you know, sometimes those statistics themselves are hard to connect with. Mm -hmm. Maybe someone isn't as familiar with your product as you are, or these types of users and what they're trying to accomplish. But you've looked at personas, you've seen focus groups be carried out, you've talked to people, you've watched them, and you know their frustrations or what gets them delighted. And now you have all this data. Okay, well, great. You can bring that together in a way that, you know, probably I couldn't while I may be in some ways more experienced working with the data, I'm not gonna have those tidbits, those human stories that I can layer into the conversation to really bring it to life. Because at the end of the day, we're trying to have people, real human beings accomplish things. And so there's a, a human component to it that you can weave into it with all of that experience. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's that you've hit on such a crucial point, right? It's about people and their uses and their the way that they are going to interact with the product you're making or whatever it is that you're interested in. And so there is this, it seems very different, but maybe it's not the qualitative aspect of talking to people of asking them, how do you feel about this? Or what makes you like this or dislike this? And then the the quantitative aspect, which is we have 5.2 million product purchases in this realm or, you know, things like that. How do you how do you think about combining those? Do they? It's, I mean, in some cases, maybe it works better than others. But I think qualitative research is where product managers shine. You know, they'll go out and they'll find market research in um, in pragmatic. We encourage them to do Nahito visits, which is nothing important happens in the office. You have to go out <laughs> and talk to people, and so you know that. But that is very anecdotal. Even if you've done a few, you're still not anywhere near the kind of quantitative data that you might be collecting. How do you think about, or how would you encourage others to think about putting that stuff together? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when you mentioned that, that idea of going and observing, it reminded me of the Japanese concept of the Gemba, you know, this idea that you go to where the value is. If a reporter is reporting from a crime scene, they speak of it as, you know, reporting from the Gemba. And this is something I learned in, um, in manufacturing where you can look at spreadsheets all day, but sometimes what you really need to do is get out of your office, go down to the place where they're working on those products and watch what's happening. You know, I think part of the relationship here is that, you know, when you observe things or talk to people, this is a really useful way to form hypotheses. And then when you get the data, that's a useful way to test those hypotheses. And then it can be circular, right, where you can actually... And hopefully it's a virtuous cycle where you're growing in wisdom all along the way. But I feel like, you know, induction, that's where we see individual things happening and we go, oh, wow, look at that. There is a an observation. And then you think to yourself, well, wait a second, maybe it's like that more generally, or maybe that's actually quite different than something else happening. Well, great. You have a hypothesis now. You're saying my hypothesis is that this is different than that or that this is a trend. Uh, OK, well, you can now construct some kind of data collection activity or an experiment around that theory you're you're pulling together in your mind and you can see if you're right or not and then you know that might lead to as you look at the data even more hypotheses being generated but that 
process of now collecting the data, running the analysis, and then from there, you know, deducing what else might come out of it. This can be just, you know, really sort of two engines firing uh, and they can work so well together. And what I also learned kind of related to this is from the journalists I worked with when I ran the Tableau public platform, they were great at combining the human side of the coin and the data side of the coin anecdote and statistics because no one needs to read their article you know they have to write an article that's interesting that draws people in and then that gives them some reason to share it and especially in the world today when we're just drowning in content and so that's what they do really well and the good ones know how to combine them in a way that is both statistically accurate but also matters to a real human being because they're talking about the, the story of real people's lives and uh, yeah, those can be those can be two uh, one two punch. I had one success story with that that I can remember when I was actually uh, in product marketing in the medical device industry. We had launched a product, and I was going to review that with some executives with a bunch of slides and charts and graphs that I was pretty sure we're going to put them to sleep. And so I went to the helpline and I said, "Hey, can I have?" I, I knew that there was a problem that that uh, was coming from the data. And so long story short, you know, I was able to go to the helpline and get some calls of people complaining about that. Mm. I was able to go to our social media team and get some tweets and social, you know, media shares of people that were complaining about that. And it was really important to me that I get the photograph of the user and, and all that, you know, along with this. And so then I put a boring chart up there and then I just on top of it, put this person and their little funny little face smiling and then their little quote where they're booing our company you know and so uh, immediately all the executives were like oh they, they kind of paid more attention they sat forward they looked they even laughed a little bit you know and, and even though we were you know it wasn't a great story about what, what had been happening but in any case they were drawn in in a way that they weren't with just the data and i was able to layer those two together you know in a way that i think cause them to pay a lot more attention and ultimately give us the funding we needed to go fix the product problem. And would I have been able to get that funding without all the anecdotes? Maybe, I don't know. I don't think so, but it's hard to say, you know, but in any case, I know that it worked out well. And um, I walked away from that experience feeling that that was a really important thing was to be able to find a way to do that. That's ethical, that's true to the data, but also, you know, representing people and how they feel. And, and actually not neglecting one or the other, but, but doing them both. Yeah. And I think that's such a, this, such a crucial element is that when we talk about becoming more data driven or incorporating more data, we're not saying we're replacing things. Mm -hmm. And so that is a really nice way of thinking about putting those two worlds that can sometimes seem siloed or very different into a very nice combination that can be really effective. That said, when it works as you're sort of describing it, it's just, you know, perfect. You know, you have a nice data collection coming in. You have great anecdotal information coming in. You match your hypotheses with your findings, but it doesn't often work as smoothly as that, right? I mean, and that's what attracted right, right. me to your book, which is uh -huh. all about pitfalls. Yeah. So maybe we can start with whatever your favorite are or the most uh, essential things to consider of the pitfalls you can run into when it doesn't work as smoothly as that. Yeah, so, um, well, I think the first one, pitfall 1A in the book is this idea of the data reality gap. That's, mm -hmm. There's always a gap between your data and reality. You know, I learned this as a mechanical design engineer coming out of college in 2000 when, um, you know, uh, when it came to 
measuring parts coming in from the vendor and incoming inspection or building something in a prototype in the lab or even in production, you know, the data that we were working with wasn't always a perfect, in fact, it was really never a perfect reflection of reality. There's always some gap there. And so it's just interesting though, that uh, I've noticed my, that myself, as well as others I've worked with, we kind of tend to forget that. And we assume that the data is purely objective, totally unbiased, even though even saying that, of course, sounds ridiculous, but it's just the way we think about it. Mm-hmm. We, do, we don't challenge it. There's a truthiness, as we say, that seems to go along with these tables of numbers. When the reality is, I mean, every measurement system has various sources of noise and error. People get things wrong all the time. And, you know, processing data can be a tricky thing and it can lead to all sorts of inconsistencies and inaccuracies. So, you know, just remembering that I think is an important um, way to avoid a very common pitfall. The, The time that this really became so painfully obvious to me was when I was presenting to a group of people at this luncheon, pretty close to a, a little bridge in mm, I was going to ask you about that. Of, yeah. That yeah. <laughs> so this little bridge in Seattle, kind of close to the Tableau offices where I was working at the time. It's a, it's a drawbridge, so it goes up and down. I think it's randomly the one that goes up and down the most because it's over 100 years old, but so pretty low and every sailboat that goes by causes it to need to go up or down. But they have little bicycle counters on it. The city of Seattle wants to encourage bike ridership. And so I just connected to some data set there with the people in the room as I was presenting to them and, you know, kind of being unprepared, I hadn't looked at the data yet. And so I just put it up on the screen and we made a a simple line chart showing the count of the number of bicycles that are across the bridge. And we see this massive spike in the data, you know, it was like twice as, as much, twice as many bicycles supposedly had crossed the bridge on one specific day. And so we kind of were all taken aback and, you know, it's kind of hard not to notice is to literally it was out know, there like a sore thumb. And so we start having a conversation. Well, what do we think could have caused this? Oh, maybe it was a tournament or I mean, or like, a, you know, maybe it was a race or maybe it was a bike to work day or everybody's throwing out all these ideas, but we didn't know. So we moved on. And then later on in the presentation, this gentleman in the back started raising his hand and he had his phone in his hand. And he said, I, I found out why. And I said, oh, that's great. You know, could you, could you tell us? And he said, well, it turns out that the, the bicycle counters had a problem with their batteries and they were overcounting. So there was a glitch. Hmm. Some bicycle blogger had emailed back and forth with the Department of Transportation and they told a story about how they changed the batteries and these crazy counts seemed to go away. So they weren't sure, but that was their theory. But what really hit me in that moment was that before that gentleman raised his hand, you know, no one in all of our musings about what might have caused this spike in the data, no one sat there and said, well, maybe it's not real. Maybe, maybe there's a problem with the data or maybe the sensors were wrong, broken or something. I mean, no one threw that out there, not even me. I mean, and I have been, I'm the one sharing the data with them, you know? So that's when I realized, you know, wow, it's just, it's just common, I think, or it's sort of human nature that we don't ask ourselves, you know, is there a potential issue with this data or what are the various sources of, in, of inaccuracy that might be present here along with this data I'm visualizing? So that's a common one. I start off with that one. You know, I think it, it helps to just, keep our mind engaged, just like I was talking about, you know, you need to think about your intuitive spark and that spark is going to tell you maybe there's a problem and you need to be able to foster that instead of, you know, just racing ahead, assuming everything's fine and there's no problems when it's just not reality. Yeah. I mean, and there are a lot I mean, of, of potential pitfalls. What are some of the more common ones that you see other than that misalignment, which is key, yeah. right? Because if you're not 
if you're counting something that doesn't exist, you know where the problem is, and that's a huge problem. But usually once you have a clear sense of the data being correct, there's still a lot of ways in yeah. which we can, you know, we can mess things up because after all, we are always dealing with uh, humans at some point, right? Right. I think totally. that's the other kind of misconception is that people, once you bring in data, you're done. It, like it, it's always going to be clear and simple because it's data. It's no longer uh, human and fallible, but it's clearly mm -hmm. not the, not the case. So yeah. What else should people look out for? Well, I think when you say what other ones do we see, I think the ones we see the most often are the visual ones that are uh, reflected in chart choices that are reflected in decisions people make when they make a chart to communicate something. And maybe they do that in a way that results in something that's very misleading mm -hmm. or confusing. Those are the ones usually that you see on Twitter and everybody loves to pile on and say how bad it is. Uh, it started off early in my career with people just basically universally criticizing pie charts, which I don't necessarily believe in. I think they have their place. Maybe it's limited, but there are valid uses for a pie chart in my point of view. And so we went from that simple knee jerk, that chart type is bad, to maybe a, a more sophisticated awareness of certain elements. Maybe the pie chart is not showing part to whole data. You know, maybe we're talking about a situation where there's a lot of classic examples you'll see in the, in the news where and I think a good example of this would be uh, there's a website called Junk Charts, I think it is by yeah. Kaiser Fung. Yeah, so you can see a lot of great examples, not great, not great examples, horrible right? examples, yeah. But yeah, <laughs> so one that might you, you might see a lot as well. If you look at the pie slices, you see, oh, they don't add up to, they add up to the number that's much greater than 100%. And that's probably because it was resulting from a form that said check all that apply. So you know, you could pick all the political candidates that you'd be willing to, to support. And now they turn that into a pie chart. Well, if you try to imagine that, you're going to get pie slices that are, are much more, more than 100%. So, you know, again, that's just not an appropriate way to show that data. It's just going to lead to something that's very misleading. There's one also um, I think about, you know, most people I think who have learned to read and write going from left to right, like with the English language or many other uh, Latin languages, would typically assume that a left to right line is progressing forward in time. Mm. It's not always the case, but you know that tends to be what we generally assume when we see a line. And so it's not always not, not also true necessarily, by the way, for people that learn to write right to left, like with Arabic. Hebrew is an interesting case in that uh, the number system goes left to right, but the, the words go right to left. So if you talk to a little uh, child, they've done some research into this and maybe children in, in Israel who are learning Hebrew, might be a little more 50-50 about the way they think about left to right versus right to left and its relationship to time. Uh, and actually, if you're interested in that in that topic, I really recommend you read a book called Mind in Motion by Barbara Tversky. Tversky is uh, the wife of Amos Tversky, who was the partner of Daniel Kahneman, whose name mm -hmm. I mentioned earlier, yeah. as the author of Thinking Fast and Slow. Well, it turns out Dr. Tversky, Barbara Tversky, professor at Stanford, NYU, I think as well. She's brilliant in her own right and has written what I think is just a fabulous book about the way our brains map time and space and see those visually. And so my point is, well, I've noticed when in the news, for example, I saw a line chart that showed Asian American hate crimes in Seattle, my hometown, over time. Now, it actually showed the 2020 data on the left, then 2019, 2018, 2017. And when I flash that chart in front of my students and I say, is crime going up or down? They all say down. 
but you can see if you look a second time that actually it's going up. It's just that the line has been flipped. You know, so those are some examples. When you say what are some of the pitfalls you see, those are the ones I see. But then, and working for Tableau as a visual analytics company, I was seeing charts and graphs all the time and starting to get a little more clear in my own mind about what were some of the, the mechanisms or choices that people were making that might be steering people uh, in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. But then it occurred to me one day that there's so many things and ways we process the data before we get to the point where we're making a chart, that just the chart choices and those specific design choices relative to those charts, that's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, there's so many ways we can fall into analytical pitfalls or processing data in a way that results in many, many different types of errors. And, um, you know, I can put together a perfectly compliant bar chart that all the viz gurus are going to nod and give their thumbs up. But, you know, maybe it's made with completely faulty data or I don't know, maybe I joined it with another table on the wrong kind of criteria or mm -hmm. who knows. I mean, they're just, it's just dizzying when you think of how many problems could have happened before I get to the point where I'm actually making and sharing a chart. And that's what I tried to layer into the book in other places. You know, what are some of the ways we make just analytical blunders or even just really technical kinds of mistakes in the way we work with data? So, you know, it's a minefield. And so I, I yeah. the one hand that's scary for people. And um, I think that that, unfortunately, that's the reality. And so my philosophy with that book was just to say, well, can I put together at least as much information as I can about the pitfalls I've fallen into myself such that maybe people will will not fall into them as many times as I have. But to err as human, I continue to fall into the same pitfalls I wrote about uh, a few years ago. So, you know, it's, it's inevitable. It's part of the process. And I think on some level, we have to embrace that and just say, well, we're going to keep going forward, learning as we go, sharing what we learned and maybe even what we did right or did wrong. And, uh, you know, hopefully developing, if you think about it, developing an immune system as a species to some of these, some of these bugs that are out there, you know, as it relates to processing data. Yeah. And I think that's exactly it, right? We have to accept to start that data inherently comes with potential flaws or potential pitfalls that we have to watch out for. But yeah, what, what you've just said, I think alone, if, if that's all you ever heard about data, I think it would scare off a lot of people maybe say like, okay, no, no, we don't need to be data driven. I've just heard about all of these pitfalls that we can fall into. So obviously people are still embracing it. And it is, it seems yeah. a crucial element for any successful organization is to be data driven, to use data, not just instincts or, or opinions. In pra pragmatic, there's a saying that uh, your opinion, although interesting is irrelevant, bring in the data, right? Bring in, bring in, mm -hmm the knowledge that you have and, and explain your sources or what have you. So then if you are somebody who is going to work with a data team or going to engage in a data project, you know that you want to know something. Maybe you have a, a clear hypothesis or maybe you just want to know how can we make more money? How can we sell more product? And that's the starting point, right? What should somebody do? Should they go over all the possible flaws? I mean, it seems pretty daunting to think about all the flaws that could happen <laughs> and then double check the yeah. work that's coming in, but they also right. probably shouldn't, you know, just accept everything at face value. So what, what do you suggest for the people who aren't doing the data analysis, but are per perhaps contracting the data analysis or asking for it to be done within their organization or what have you? Yeah, I think that, so when I, so for the first point, when I'm doing the data analysis myself, 
my approach is to explore the contours of the data before I ask and answer any questions about it from it, you know, using it. And, and when I say that, it's common referred to as data profiling, but, you know, take a look at the maxes and mins, try to see if there are some nulls in there. You know, what is the meaning of a row or an attribute? What, what about the shapes of the distributions? Do you see some funny outliers when you look at it? Just get a sense of what's there. Because a lot of the time, you know, if there's a, an egregious problem in the data, you might notice it pretty early if you just do a quick scan of what's there. So if you're not doing the analysis, I would ask the people who are to do that, you know, to say, can you please just uh, spend some time orienting yourself with this data? Maybe you know it because you helped collect it or you were part of the team that gathered that data. And so you can have a meeting where you just sort of just, like you mentioned, the idea of just observing what's there, you know, uh, getting away from maybe some other things you're doing that might be distracting you and just look closely at what's there, you know, focusing on it and just scanning it. I think that's an important step. I call that exploring the contours of your data. Mm -hmm. um, I compare it to, there's two, two uh, European explorers who came across New Zealand. The first, his name's Abel Tasman. He came across New Zealand in the 1600s, I believe it was. And um, he and his crew named this, what they felt was a cutaway, not, not too far from Wellington. They called that Zehane's Bight after one of their ships. Well, a little over 100 years later, James Cook comes along and they do a thorough circumnavigation of what they find out is actually two islands, North and South mm -hmm. Island, with a navigable waterway in between. And so they did a much more thorough job of exploring the contours of those islands. And they realized there was a null, there was a gap between those islands uh, that, that uh, Tasman and his crew totally missed. And so they sailed away, Tasman, from, these, from New Zealand, completely misunderstanding like the most important geographic trait of New Zealand is that there are actually two islands, not one. So they missed it, you know, and this is how it is with data. We can, if we just do a cursory or not even spend time orienting ourselves on the data and we start using it, well, we're going to jump to a lot of wrong conclusions. We're going to sail away with complete wrong understanding of what's there. So I think that that's an important thing. And also you as the non-analyst need to be asking a lot of questions when they present to you, uh, we have a little uh, in, in our in our uh, second class, which is called learning to see data. We have a little checklist, you know, 16 questions we ask, like, like you mentioned it before, a couple of them, what's the source of the data? Uh, in this case, it might be you, but maybe they're bringing in other sources of data. So understanding what those are, uh, taking a look at some of the choices they made when they designed the charts and graphs that they're showing to you, asking yourself what questions are surfacing as you look at the data. Are there outliers? Are there values that seem like they are in bizarre places, well, that leads to questions about those, uh, potentially those outliers or those values that are sticking up like a sore thumb, like in the case of the bike data mm -hmm. that I looked at with that group. So those are good questions, you know, and they should lead to inquiry, they should lead to dialogue. And so you can be a part of that dialogue and you can push back. You can ask questions about what you're seeing instead of just assuming that if there's something that looks confusing to you, don't fall into the trap of just assuming there's something wrong with you. I mean, it could be that you're this little red flag that's popping up in the back of your mind or this little alarm that's going off. It could be very important. It could be that there is an issue that needs to be addressed. And so I think sometimes we just stay quiet because we're worried that maybe we don't feel really comfortable with data in the first place. We're worried that maybe it's the problem is me that I don't understand it. I don't necessarily want everybody to think that I don't know something. So I just don't say anything. 
I don't think that that's a valuable way to interact with data and other human beings. You know, you need to kind of come in with all the questions on the table and, you know, be comfortable with not knowing and sharing as much and asking for clarity. And that's going to be an important step so that you'll, if someone has fallen into a pitfall, you'll become aware of it. Yeah. I mean, and that's such a crucial point as well. I think that's something that we're emphasizing and, you know, my background, my PhD is in communication studies and media. And so I'm very interested in how things are, are said or expressed. And that part is often missing, I found, from talking to people about the data process, right? You go ask a question, they come back with some information, and that's it. But this, what you've just brought up about making sure you have a discussion, asking questions on both sides. You know, if you're giving your work to a data team or your assignment, they're coming back with something, you want to have a conversation. How do you suggest, or not necessarily the questions, although, the, I mean, like you said, having a checklist is a, probably a great idea, but how do you encourage others to hold conversations? I'm sure you don't want to get, you don't want to offend people and you don't want to look dumb. I, I think that is something that people are trying to protect themselves from, which, you know, let's just get rid of that right there. Nobody is 100% perfect in any of this. How would you encourage people to have these discussions in the most productive way possible? I think if you tee up the conversation like this, you say, okay, hey, you know, the product team is going to meet with the data analysts. And instead of a presentation, we want to start with a data discovery session. So after you've spent some time, data analyst team crunching the numbers, we wanted to sit down with you in a mutual exploratory way. In other words, let's project on the screen or on a, a screen that we're all dialed into, maybe for a virtual meeting, like, like the one that you are, you and I are in right now, Chris. We can say someone's going to share the screen and we're going to talk about some interesting things that you're finding. We're going to have questions for you. And ideally, you'll have someone who's savvy enough with some data tools like maybe Tableau or Power BI that can pivot and follow the conversation in a way that reveals new insights. So it cuts down the cycle time between, because here's what happens. Anytime you look at data, people say, oh, the best thing that can happen is you have the answer to your question. I don't, th I don't think that's true. The best thing most often for me is I get a brand new question that I didn't have before. And so then what you want to do is close the cycle time between when that question pops up in your head and when you get an answer. So if you have people that are familiar with the subject matter, that's you, someone who's familiar with the data because they've been diving into it, and someone who's a good driver that can navigate, you know, this is a person to control. And you're now facilitating a conversation between those three roles, the subject matter expert, the data expert, and someone who's able to manipulate the data very quickly. And that quickly piece is, is, is essential that you find a tool that lets you go around this. It's kind of like you're going around a, a racetrack, you know, so you have to have a good horse. And so that horse has got to be really fast, get you around as many times as possible in the 45 minutes or an hour that you have scheduled with these people that you're partnering with. That to me is how you tee it up. You say, this is a, a data discovery session. Mm. I worked at Tableau for many years. People thought, oh, it's a reporting tool. Oh, it's an analytics tool. Then I learned it's really discussion. So it's most powerful usage. And this is true of other visual analytics software as well is as a dialogue enhancer. So you and I can say, oh, huh, I wonder what about this? And someone can pivot the data. What if you looked at it like this way? What, what happens if we brought in population into these statistics? Would it, if we look at it on a per capita basis, someone says, oh, you have to give me a couple of minutes. I got to go pull some data on population by zip code, but hold on. I know where that is. I'm going to get that. 
And then, you know, before long, you're like, okay, here it is. And we're looking at it. Or maybe say, well, we're going to come back to you tomorrow with that, that specific detail um, resolved. Not weeks later or months later, when you forgot the question, you don't even remember what it was you cared about back then. Mm-hmm. You have to close the gap quickly between question and answer. Now, I think today we live in a world where because of the evolution of these tools, that's really possible in a way that wasn't possible when I started my career back in 2000. So I think that that is to me, the most important thing is, you know, and when it's a beautiful thing when it happens well, you know, when you got people that are all on board with that, it's really cool to see how much you can generate just aha moment after aha moment. And you just go from one to the next in a half an hour, you walk out of the room and you're just blown away at what you've learned, you know, and obviously there's still going to be a list of further questions to follow up. You're not going to get through all of them, but you'll be able to, you'll be able to resolve a lot of those important questions right there in the flow. And that's the thing. If you can stay in the flow with people, you got people in the room, you got data in the room, you get the right tools and you're just creating some amazing insights on the fly. Yeah. That to me is where you really have some powerful experiences with data. Yeah. I love that idea of a sort of symbiosis where it, you know, it keeps building, you're building off of the data, the data is building off of you because you can look for more things or ask different questions. And it, it's very much um, like a give and take. Is very different though than I think in some cases than machine learning or you know like artificial intelligence programs where there can be a black box or no matter how smart you are unless you are the person designing it you're not going to understand what happened from I asked this question of data and it spit out this is there a different way or or what would you suggest because what you've just described sounds like such a great experience but I'm, I'm not sure how it works for the more technical, you know, the, the more difficult things like machine learning and artificial intelligence. Yeah. So, no, it's a great point. I mean, what I described is mostly what I call, we, at Tableau, we refer to this as the human in the loop mm-hmm. of the analytics process. And when you start to talk about unleashing algorithms that are going to automatically run on massive sets of data and not just return insights that you can interact with, but even sometimes just immediately implements them according to some rule that maybe even gets revised over time by the algorithm itself. And so, yeah, in those cases, you are, like I said, unleashing this code on some data set. It is changing the experience potentially of uh, people who are using your product in real time. And so then your interaction with that is almost more based on the reporting of the functionality of that algorithm. Is it achieving its goals? Are there any unintended byproducts that may be not so desirable? And so then, you know, it's more of a review than it is, it's more review than analyze. You know, it's sort of like, at least in, in my experience, that's what you're doing is you're taking a look at, say, your recommendation engine and what's it resulting in. And so you're now you're looking at the output, uh, and hopefully there have been some ways that you can build reporting into the functionality of, of some of this, some of these more advanced algorithms that you're you're creating together as a team. And so then, you know, again, you know, you're reviewing those algorithms and their performance and their behavior, and that gets back into the analysis process again. So we're we're similarly doing a mutual data discovery session based on that and finding which of the myriad ways of fine tuning this code should we should we uh, you know, actually proceed because there are always so many different parameters that you can adjust. Mm-hmm. And so then, you know, yeah, you're back into kind of tinkering and you're back into more of a free form or free flowing analytical process. 
and you're back in that same process that I've been describing up until now. But yeah, I think it is different, you know, because there is some aspect of utilization of the data that doesn't involve a human in the loop per se. But I think the human is in the loop more as a, a removed uh, reviewer and adjuster, as opposed to someone who's actually involved with making the decision. Well, you might not be, it might be the code that's making the decision uh, right there in the moment. And thank God, right? Because otherwise you need to employ, I don't know how many people in order to yeah. handle the, the traffic and the load. So there's some value to that. I just also think some of the same pitfalls apply, You know, assuming that all the data coming into this algorithm, this black box, as you called it, is pristine. You know, those are the sorts of things I think that have, or even unbiased. I mean, this is a big problem, right? Yeah. Where a lot of the, the algorithms are creating situations or let's say perpetuating situations that are unfair for certain individuals in certain groups. And no one's stopped to think about that maybe, or they haven't thought about it in a way that also allowed them to have time as a team to try to remove some of that bias, if at all possible knowing that you can't perfectly remove it, but at least you can try to hedge it in a bit. So when you get into data ethics that the team should be thinking about. So there's never an end of questions that you can apply to all of these types of approaches, right? Whether it's just pure visualization or reporting or analytics or advanced analytics, or even evaluating the performance of more uh, automated algorithms. So that's yeah. my, my point of view about it. There's always a role for the human in the loop, hopefully. I don't see that ever changing. It's just a question of how involved are you in the moment when the decision is being made. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I'm thinking also about how so much of the the cleanest data that is available, things like zip codes, things like income, police records, or, or the prison records, are very clean in the sense that you know they're very specific. All of that is so tied to histories of of bias and prejudice that yeah, it's very difficult to use. It's very difficult to find data that doesn't come from in some sense, a biased environment, right? Well, the biased world created the data. Exactly. You know? So so you have to say, okay, well, is there a way we can steer it to a way that's less systemic in its bias? But it might not even be bias. It might just be flat out error. Like I remember kind of cracking up one time when I visualized a data set of 311 calls in New York. And I saw this dot way to the north, you know, way outside of the state of New York. I mean, I don't know, up in Canada, maybe somewhere. No, it must not have. It must have been in the U.S. somewhere. I thought, what the heck is that? It's not even in New York State, let alone New York City. So I hovered over it, and it was one, two, three, four, five. You know, so it's like <laughs> probably someone just keyed that. I mean, I'm guessing, but maybe someone just keyed that in because they didn't know what, so they just put one, two, three, four, five in there. So there's going to be lots of that too, where it isn't necessarily so. Yeah, that's uh, it's obviously just a much more technical problem than than bias and mm -hmm. and whatnot, but but still something that you have to take into account when you write this code. How does it? handle those kinds of inputs and maybe alerts us to certain situations that might cause behavior that's not intended. Yeah. And are there places that you suggest people consider that maybe aren't as frequently considered when it comes to taking in data? I think the issue is if we're, if we're thinking about products, you have people who have purchased your product and, you know, call centers or, or complaints and these kinds of things are, are monitored. They're very clean in terms of being able to, to see what people have said about your product. And then you have, you know, larger data sets, like I said, zip codes or what have you. But then what surprised me is in this, you know, vast world of data, it's still very hard to find the data that you want. 
especially clean data that you want. Um, but yeah. I'm wondering, are there places that you found that, hey, you know, people don't think to look here, but this is actually a rich source of data. Obviously websites, right? They track everything. But if somebody doesn't go to your website, then you don't know who they are. So yeah. But where are some maybe hidden gems when it comes to data? Uh, so I really admired the Tableau product team that I had a chance to work with. And they were great about finding ways to assess how the product was being used. They even used maybe some, you know, more primary research in the form of eye tracking experiments, things like that, to see where people were looking or even clicking. Even some of that's incorporated into standard web analytics when it's a web product that's being uh, evaluated. So those are cool. I mean, like you talked about before, I love the, the qualitative component too. And you can talk to helplines, you can see social chatter about your topic. And there's some great tools now to, uh, to uh, kind of, you know, aggregate some of that, that, that chatter that's happening about your product. Let's see, I'm trying to think of when I was a product mar marketer. I mean, we did focus groups. We did some interesting surveys. Those are good. Th those really do help. They get you to the place where you can answer very specific questions maybe about it. Yeah, returns, if it's a physical product, those are going to be useful ways to see how is this breaking. Yeah, let's see. I'm trying to think of other examples of when I've kind of come across a treasure trove of data about a product and how it was behaving or whether it was successful or not. Those are, I think, the main ones that I used or at least interacted with in my time in product marketing for BI. I mean, you know, looking at, we there was a whole team that was focused on competitive intelligence. So what are your competitors doing differently than you? Well, what that's a good, let me ask about touting? that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So competitive intelligence, right? I was yeah. also something that comes up a lot. You know, if you're at a certain organization, hopefully everything the organization knows, right? In terms of the data being collected, but you don't know anything necessarily except for what's publicly available, like prices and I don't know, packages, advertising campaigns. Where, if anywhere, would you go, especially considering the ethical questions you were talking about earlier, right? Um, yeah. So short of going in and sneaking in and stealing things, which we would never encourage, how do you find out competitive information? Like what are the best practices for getting competitors data or, or can yeah. you? Yeah. I mean, I think that there's some industry sources that are going to put out their, their packages and you'll probably have to pay for that, you know, like from Gartner or something like that. They've done an assessment and they've, and we all know the magic quadrants and they'll, they'll give their opinion about some of the different products. And those are usually coming from a combination, I think of, surveys that companies themselves are filling out as well as feedback they're getting from their users. I think those are useful. I mean, I'm a big believer in just use, if you can just use your competitors products. I mean, just really use them, actually spend time with them yourself. If you're deep in the product space and you want to be so intimately familiar with what you do well versus what they do well, it might help you to, to try it out and just go through their tutorials and, you know, start to play around with it. I, when I was at Tableau, I loved, and part of the reason I left is because I love teaching about lots of different products, you know, not just one. Mm. So I was always using different products. I, you know, I wrote a blog post about Google Data Studio when I was there. I was just so into it. And, you know, it's pros and cons. And just from the point of view of what if, so I was a bit unique because they hired me there because I had won a contest using their product. So I was already an avid user of their products, which is why I got the job. And so 
I just loved the space. I, and so I was coming from the point of view of someone who already was a very enthusiastic user of the product as well as the other products too. And so that isn't always doable. I'm thinking about when I was in medical devices, I had a product that was for someone with diabetes, but I don't have diabetes. And so, but my friend there who worked with me in the marketing team, he, he did. And um, so we, I just participated in some, some uh, clinical studies, you know, where I was not necessarily, I mean, there are obviously ones where I was just wearing the devices and giving my, uh, my feedback on, you know, how they felt and things, not from necessarily uh, the point of view of someone, instead of injecting insulin, I was injecting saline, a saline solution, but, but and so it was as close as I could get, you know, so I tried to get close to the feeling of what it would be like to be using this product. What was it like to have this pump and this tubing attached to me as I'm running around and, you know, playing with my, my, my son in the playground. So what were the things that kind of got in my way and how did they get in my way? So it's one thing to just listen to a focus group. It's another thing to try it out. And of course, now we're dealing with very small N, you know, you're one person and it's your experiences. And so you're looking at it through your lens and you have to realize that that is a very specific lens. And so it won't be shared by everyone, but, but at least you're getting closer to that actual experience of someone using these products and it could be yours, it could be competitors products. So I don't know. I, you know, I always found that I learned a lot from those really hands-on experiences. And again, you know, their usefulness wasn't in giving me concrete industry-wide knowledge, but rather in helping me come up with maybe some interesting questions or hypotheses to test on at, at a larger scale, you know, maybe through yeah. a survey or a focus group, or maybe it informed a detail we changed about the product that then we tested in a certain way to see if it accomplished what we, what we hope it accomplished. So yeah, there's so many sources of data about products. I just tried to get as close to it as I could myself, whether you're listening. I would sit there with headphones in, listening to the calls coming in live, to just feel the frustration you know, of the people. And you just really start to empathize with them. You really start to feel what that must feel like. And I just think that there's, a power, there's power in that than just looking at spreadsheets and realizing, okay, we're just going to deal with the top three complaints and that's it. Maybe, maybe the severity of complaint number 10 in ranking is actually causing you more problems than one through nine combined. Depends. Yeah. Um, you know, so yeah, those are some interesting nuances maybe to this, this whole, you know, theme of this conversation, right, Chris, is the combination of qualitative and quantitative, the combination of the human realm and the data realm. And as it relates to products from, from my own experience, having been a product marketer as well as a design engineer. Yeah, I think, I mean, exactly. That's it, right? You can't necessarily succeed with just one or just the other. It's that combination that's really the, the gold you're looking for. And if people are looking to capitalize on that and to really take their organization or their team to the next level by incorporating data practices in a, in a stronger way, in a new way, what are, what are two things that you would suggest somebody, maybe a business leader, start? Maybe they could do it tomorrow after listening to this. What would they start to do in order to really harness that power, especially if they have been doing the qualitative stuff, but they know that they need to up their game in terms of the quantitative or the data? Well, yeah, what would you suggest they can maybe start doing in the next day or two? You know, I think that I, I learn really, I learn a lot from books and not everyone does. There's some great books out there that I think would be helpful for anyone to pick up and just start thumbing through. Books like How Charts Lie by Alberto Cairo, books like Better, Better Data Visualizations by John Schwabish. Those both have come out in the last couple of years. 
everyone's got their favorite list. So if you're a reader, pick up a good book or two. I think that that's a good starting point. Anyone can do that uh, right away. You know, in my experience, though, what, what really helped me was the rolling up the sleeves and the doing. So that was what I loved about Tableau Public because as I started using it, I'm not saying necessarily use that product. I would say check it out. It's a good one to to do. But yeah, and it's free for me, people, right? To use Tableau is, Public, yeah. although they, yep. you do have to, you know, consider that it's public, right? Right, right. Yeah. Everything you're so in along that line, Chris. What I did was I started visualizing topics that were interesting to me using data in the public domain. Mm -hmm. So I was I was born in Canada, and I really yeah, me too. Idolized Wayne. Oh, really? <laughs> so I, I was born in uh, the, the late '70s. So you know, for me as a kid, Wayne Gretzky was my idol. Mm -hmm. So I went and found some data about him, and I made a little project that I visualized how much better he was in terms of his point. Uh, tally over his career than the other top 99 players in NHL history. And so, again, it was just, uh, it sounds silly. You saying, Ben, are you really telling me that I should visualize data about my hobbies? And actually, yeah, I think because what happens is you start to, it matters to you. You care, you're interested in it, you're engaged. It isn't some boring training data set that you care nothing about That's at all. That's a great point. You know, that I mean, there, there are training data sets. We even create our own. So I don't mean to necessarily knock them wholesale. I just think that when even when, our, when we teach our courses, we say, look, apply this to your own data. Because when you do that, you really find that the learnings stick with you. And again, you're just engaged because you care. Maybe I, I remember a, a friend of mine made a visualization about multiple sclerosis, which her mom had that condition and she was going to be uh, running in a race. And so she wanted to understand more about the incidence and prevalence of that disease in this country. And as she, and she used that for a fundraiser, you know, so she created some charts and she shared that with the social media network and said, Hey, I'm running a race. You can donate, you know? So here's an example of someone who isn't just using data and learning how to play around with it. They're using it to support a cause they believe in. I mean, this is really where I think you start to feel that data is for you. It's helping you do something you want to do. And it isn't just some cold training example. Uh, and of course, that thing that you need to do, maybe that is your own business data, in which case, to your point, you would not use a, a public tool. And so maybe you are using one of the ones that's available to you mm -hmm. from your from your employer. But I like but that idea of starting, them. starting simple, yeah, with something. So yeah. even if your goal is to incorporate your business data, you don't have to do that right away. You can play with, right. um, yeah, with goals scored or what have you. Exactly, because it's a, it's a canvas. It's uh, maybe less pressure. Yeah. And it's it's maybe even in some ways you might find that you shock yourself because you actually kind of have fun uh, learning something new and, and making something cool and uh, playing with data that is fun and interesting to you. So yeah. I like doing that. Yeah. I, and so when I teach my students that at University of Washington, first couple, I say, hey, you got to, you know, we call BYOD, right? Bring your own data. I say, here's your here's your your assignment. Now you have to go do this with data you find about a topic that's interesting to you. First couple of weeks, they come back and say, Ben. I spent more time finding the data than I did working on it. And I just kind of nod and say, yeah, that's, you know, because it is hard to find clean data about topics you care about. But eventually you find that that itself is a skill to be mm -hmm. able to uh, locate and find and gather or even maybe create data about topics that are interesting to you. And so I, I have them stick with it by the end of the 10 week term. You know, they spend a lot less time finding relevant data and that that I don't think I could have taught them that by giving them some CSV to download, you know, yeah. that might not, might not be about something they care about.
Yeah, there's definitely an intrinsic motivation when when you're bringing your own data. That's great. Ben, if people want to know more about you or follow you, where would you suggest they look? Yeah, I've been spending more time on LinkedIn these days. So it's just my profile is Ben R. Jones. I had spent a lot more time on Twitter than I have lately, but that's at Data Remixed. And other than that, you know, uh, you'll probably be able to find me on, on dataliteracy.com and the about page there. You learn about what we're all about, our mission and our vision. So those are three great places to go find me. And, and uh, we'd love to hear from your, uh, your listeners here, Chris, if there was something that we talked about that was interesting to them. I would love to know about that and, you know, continue the conversation there on any one of those channels. Definitely. And as you said, it's a conversation that is ongoing, whether it's for a specific data project or just this field in general. And I really appreciate you giving me your time today to have a conversation. I hope we can continue it later too. I appreciate you inviting me to the show, Chris. It's been a lot of fun and hopefully the conversation uh, was interesting to everyone else too. So thanks a lot. Much appreciated. 